And boom, we are back for another episode of AlphaCast. I'm Mike Winter. I'm here as always with Dr. Bear Paul Lando up here on the Smith River on the border of California and Oregon in the great state of Jefferson. Alpha Vedic is an off-grid herbal farm and health co-op. We are basically trying to usher in a new concept of what commerce can be. And with this podcast, we bring in people that we really respect thinkers that are really pushing the envelope in terms of where we can go as a society, as a culture. Uh, and today we have somebody who we're really excited about, Charles Eisenstein. And uh, we're so happy to have him on here and we're going to have a great conversation. Real quick, a couple points of business. Um, if you're new to the podcast and you're interested to know more about what we're up to, you can go to our website, alphavedic.com. That's A-L-F-A-V-E-D-I-C.com. There you can join our mailing list to get updates on everything we're doing, future podcast guests, as well as join our co-op, which is really something we're getting more and more serious about as we feel like this is the future of where things need to go. Our Physic Garden Co-op, you can access currently on Patreon. So go check that out. And we have an executive uh, membership where we do monthly meetings. We just finished one uh, a couple days ago. And it's really an exciting um, uh, new process for us. So please check that out. Also, if you want to support us, you can support us in a myriad of ways from joining the Brave Browser to joining us on DLive here, which we're currently streaming every, uh, all our podcasts on. Um, there's all sorts of things. We've got our book list, uh, alphabetic.com forward slash book list, of which we have our guest books on there today, as well as the past guests and future guests. So there's a myriad of ways you can support us. Uh, we do this free. There's no advertising, uh, no marketing. We don't even hawk our products on this podcast. We're just really all about having conversations and exploring ideas. So um, we appreciate any support that you can give us today. Or thank you so much. So what is going on in the world today? Charles Eisenstein will address this question today. Uh, he's one of the most prolific writers and speakers of our time. <clears throat> he's sharing, sharing our in, his insights and solutions to meet the challenges presently facing humanity. From an early age, Charles asked questions that societal institutions and world leaders failed to address. As a Yale graduate in mathematics and philosophy, his growing awareness of ecological devastation and social injustice dissuaded him from wholeheartedly embracing a normal career. Charles' early quest found him working in Taiwan as a Chinese translator while immersing into an eclectic investigation of Eastern spiritual traditions, health, nutrition, globalization, spirituality, physics, and biology. His internationally acclaimed books, The More Beautiful World Our Heart Knows is Possible, Sacred Economics and the Ascent of Humanity shares Charles' vision of a better world that awaits us all. We are indeed honored to have you on today, Charles, and just so happy uh, that you can join us today. How's it going? Oh, it's going great. Um, yeah, uh, thanks so much for having me on. Um, and I've, I've listened to your podcast once or twice and really appreciate it, so I'm, I'm honored to be here. Oh, that's wonderful. Uh, how are you today, Bear? I'm doing great. Uh, Charles, it's so kind for you to be with us here today. We greatly appreciate it. uh, I truly believe you are one of the more important voices out there. And I'm glad you didn't go for a normal career because, uh, you know, now you get to share what you're really all about with the the world there. Yeah, that Um, was a very flattering, that was a very flattering biography. But, you know, another interpretation is that I couldn't quite cut it in the normal world. So, (laughs) you know, I had to, to go alternative. 
I, 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 I would say not that you couldn't cut it, probably that you just didn't fit the mold and had to look elsewhere. And I think that's what happens to a lot of us these days out there. It's like, uh, no way I'm doing that. But hey, I've really been enjoying your, uh, uh, well, all of your work, but your essays in particular. And I think it's real important in this podcast era that somebody's actually writing out there, you know, when you put something down on paper, there's a level of articulation that's hard to get across otherwise. So, and, and I do better, you know, I'm more visual. I like to read things. So thank you on that. Um, your last essay, uh, sorry, um, Conspiracy Myth, was that the name of it? Yes. Yeah. Uh, I really enjoyed that. I think you made uh, some uh, amazing uh, commentaries in there. Uh, and, and one of the things I really enjoy about your work is you do bring in the concept of the bioterrain, uh, you know, and I've had a whole career in uh, bioterrain medicine. But what I learned is that the bioterrain does extend beyond biology. And when you, you know, when I was treating bodies, I would have to account for the ecology, not just of the biology, but of the, the mental and emotional bodies of, of the clients that I worked with. And you're one of the few people, or maybe the only other person I've ever heard of that, you know, uh, extends the bioterrain to, uh, you know, societal institutions and, and really, you know, as a way of looking at not just getting distracted, uh, you know, by symptoms. And, you know, as a practitioner, I'd say it's, you know, I relate to that because it's very tempting to get uh, really focused on symptoms and lose the forest through the trees. And I think the whole uh, premise, uh, and you, if I'm putting words in your mouth or, or misinterpreting your words, please correct me, but this is just what I got out of it. Uh, so when you're um, talking about, um, conspiracy myth, you know, conspiracies. I like a good conspiracy like anybody else. On the other hand, I think there's uh, way too much um, discussion about who the bad guys are, why they're doing it, and so forth. And we really miss the point, just like in bioterrain medicine, you know, don't get distracted. Look at the bigger picture, step back, and, uh, you know, when you, I think when you use the word myth, you're not discounting that um, there is truth in a lot of the conspiracy research, but it really, some of those things that we get distracted by or, or overly focused on are, are really taking away from the solutions. So uh, I think the article, your essay was great in bringing us back to the fundamentals and, uh, you know, discussing that. So um, the other thing with uh, mythology is that, uh, you know, I've, I'm at a point in my life where I don't take anything literal. Uh, everything is metaphoric, uh, every little event in my life. So I think also as a society, we need to kind of step back and look at things uh, a little less linear as well. So I just wanted to get things uh, uh, going a little bit there uh, with a bit of my own ramble. And, you know, we really want to, you know, let you have full reign today. Take this wherever you want. And thanks again so much for being here. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Um, maybe I'll just comment a little bit on, on the conspiracy myth. Because uh, it's like you said, it's not that. So when I call it a myth, that doesn't mean just a myth. In fact, anyone who says it's just a myth doesn't actually understand the power of myth. If it is actually a myth, it has power and it's a vehicle of truth that is independent of its literal factual objective truth. So I'm not saying that any, you know, name any conspiracy. I'm not saying in, in that essay, I'm not saying 
that it is literally true. And I'm not saying that it isn't literally true. I'm saying independent of that, what uh, truth is it communicating to us? And if we can um, dissociate that from establishing whether it's objectifiably, objectively true, then we can uh, bridge the, this polarized divide in society because the argument about, um, you know, was 9-11 a conspiracy or not, or, um, you know, was COVID-19 deliberately engineered in order to facilitate uh, a totalitarian takeover or, you know, any of these uh, theories out there, if we expend all of our energy and attention trying to establish their fact, factual truth, then we're not ever going to listen to what else it's communicating to us. So in the case of, of conspiracies, I mean, I've just got so much to say about it. Um, but one of the truths that it is expressing is that there is more to reality than we're being told. What that more is, different uh, conspiracy theories have a different version of that. Another truth that it's telling us is um, it, it's expressing the truth that there is a power behind the people who we can see in power that is controlling them, uh, that there's a puppet master back there. Conspiracy theories identify the puppet master as you know the Illuminati or the uh, reptilian aliens or whatever you know the pedo elite, the Satanists, et cetera, et cetera. There's there's they identify it in a certain way, but you could also identify it as like capitalism. Uh, that would be a hidden power operating behind the scenes that makes our leaders into puppets, or it could be. Um, you know, some people would name it as white supremacy, white supremacy or um, uh, patriarchy. That would be another candidate. Uh, all of these are different ways of expressing the same underlying truth. The, the candidate for the world controlling behind the scenes power that I would propose is what I call the story of separation, uh, a, a deeper level of mythology that tells us who we fundamentally are and why we are fundamentally here what a human being is, what a self is, how to live a life, what's important, uh, where we came from, where we're going. Uh, that, that is itself a mythology that is rarely examined that um, has generated what we know of today as civilization. So regardless, the, the, the conspiracy myth is, is it's giving some kind of form to this basic and authentic intuition. Um, another one that I find actually I've been thinking a lot about recently, another truth that it expresses is that there is a hidden intelligence in the world. The, most of the conspiracy theories um, have this be a negative intelligence that, that is you know, nefariously arranging, like nothing is what it seems. Uh, nothing is happening by coincidence. And it's attributed to the um, you know, evil cabal of Illuminati. And, and when I say that, please don't, like you might be listening hard for sarcasm in my voice. I'm not 
actually being dismissive of this idea. I'm, I'm saying outside of this idea, what can it be telling us, whether or not you believe that? And so this idea, so, so, so this intuition that there is an intelligence coordinating, orchestrating all phenomena, that is what I believe is one of the uh, underlying truths that can take form in conspiracy theories. And there are also, um, they also, uh, conspiracy theories also give form to psychological states, uh, to fears, to traumas and wounds, such as the, the um, state of helplessness, of, of helpless rage, the feeling of, of uh, being dominated by an implacable power that's much greater than you, that controls all aspects of life. It's not hard to think of what kind of childhood would co-resonate with that perception. So that's some of the, what I wrote about in the article. And, and again, it's not that I, I could, like this is the other thing, like um, conspiracy theory is a convenient label to apply to anything that uh, dissents from official narratives. In, in a way, it's true. Like if you think that the world is much different than the uh, conventional media is telling us, then you're already in a way you're positing some kind of conspiracy theory because if this if this is true then why isn't it being reported you know there's got to be some kind of it doesn't have to be a conscious conspiracy but there has to be at least an unconscious agreement to not look at certain things or to interpret things a certain way and so so in a way you know we could actually embrace the term conspiracy theorists especially if we understand that this coordinating power does not have to be human or does not have to be locatable as a, a conscious agency, but it can be embedded in the world. Like God doesn't have to be, you know, some guy up in the heavens moving the pieces around. The pieces themselves can be part of uh, uh, an intelligence uh, and an emergent order, uh, emergent complexity, an emergent purpose. That's a lot harder for the mind of separation to grok, that there could be design without a designer, intelligence without uh, an intelligencer, uh, sacredness without a separate spirit to bring sacredness into a mundane world. Th these are some of the basic pillars of modern mythology, which says the world is not sacred. And science and religion agree on that. Science says it's not sacred because it's just a bunch of protons, neutrons, and electrons randomly bouncing around uh, according to mathematical forces. And any meaning uh, that, that we see is our own projection. Okay? Religion says, yeah, you're right, except there's this other thing called spirit that infuses matter with sacredness. And so they're both in agreement, actually. They both don't uh, perceive matter itself to possess intrinsically sacredness, consciousness, intelligence, uh, will, uh, choice, and so on. So, so this is the, on a deep level, this is the, this is the revolution. This is the transition that we are 
uh, that is underway today, it's out of that mythology into a mythology where we no longer understand ourselves that way as separate selves, separate individuals, economic self-interest maximizers, biological uh, reproductive self-interest maximizers, um, uh, Cartesian bubbles of consciousness inside of a flesh robot, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We don't understand ourselves that way anymore, but we understand ourselves as relational beings, as interdependent, interconnected, interexistent, uh, and holographic mirrors of all things. That's the basic transition that's happening. And you can apply that to things like bioterrain theory, where if the self is not this separate, discrete individual, then your health cannot come from the perfection and the security, the walling off from the world of this separate individual, because that's not all of you. You include your relationships, your biological relationships that you talked about, um, your, you know, with the microbiome um, and the external biome that through viruses and uh, other uh, particles uh, is constantly feeding genetic information through you and other kinds of information through you, electromagnetic information, uh, chemical information, olfactory information. Like we are, the, we are these channels, we are these nodes, these nexus points in an inconceivably complex matrix of relationship. So that means when we understand that, our health depends on the health of all. We cannot separate ourselves out, no matter how much, how much we filter our water and eat organic food, you know, imported from somewhere that's not polluted yet, uh, and keep out all of the bad guys with a big wall and advanced security systems and block out all of the pathogenic viruses with masks and gloves and, and, and aspire to this paradise of perfect control, we'll never reach it. In fact, the more control that after a certain point, I mean, okay, even animals uh, alter their environment to create conditions suitable for themselves. They build nests, you know. They, so I'm not saying that, you know, all control is bad, but past a certain point, it actually generates the opposite of what it, achieve, of what it seeks. And our civilization has long ago passed that point, which we can see in the, <clears throat> and sorry if I'm talking too long here, but, but we can see it, I'll finish soon, um, we can see it in the general decline in well-being that has overtaken the most developed societies over the last generation. Where, where I was, um, I had Zach Bush on on one of my uh, I do a podcast uh, sporadically as well, and he was saying something like uh, the prevalence of childhood chronic conditions has gone up from a little over 1% in 1980 to like 52% today, uh, which includes you know, allergies, diabetes, uh, autism spectrum disorders, uh, ADHD, et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, did I mention allergies, autoimmune, autoimmune conditions? Like it's, it's, that's the real pandemic today, but we don't see people, you know, uh, out in, the, we don't see the media clamoring, oh my God, we have to do something about this. Life as normal cannot go on. This is intolerable. Well, Whereas, that's, a, that's a conspiracy theory I've been called out on too, which is ironic when I mention that. 
we're, you know, <laughs> I mentioned that one in, it's like one in every two kids now, I've heard it's over 50% have some sort of irregular issue with their health, some kind of chronic issue since the 1988 or whatever. And then right. uh, I've literally been called a conspiracy theorist for saying that. <laughs> it's kind of, it's pretty right. funny. So but anytime you point out um, anything that, that says um, something is deeply wrong in our society, then you are um, logically implicating those that run our society. You're saying they're doing it wrong. Uh, and that is actually bordering on a conspiracy theory because why would they perpetuate something that's wrong? Yeah. Yeah. Now, well, I, I mean, I think that, you know, that, that it is that they are puppets of a zeitgeist, of a paradigm, of, of a mythology themselves. And, and like Bear was saying, if we think that, you know, the pharmaceutical executives, you know, or whoever we blame for the problem, if we think that they're the problem, we're not actually embracing terrain theory, which says, well, why is the body politic so susceptible to um, uh, predators and psychopaths and, and uh, ruthless, manipulative people? Like, why has this pathogen proliferated in the body politic? That's to me, that's an important question because if we don't go there, the only solution is to kill the pathogens somehow. And guess what? If we're talking about the solution of destroying the military, industrial, pharmaceutical, NGO, financial, agricultural, educational complex <laughs> by force and winning a war against them, there's only two, two possibilities. The most likely is that we lose because they're going to be better at all-out war than we are. They're going to be more ruthless. They're more experienced. They have the guns. They have the money. They have the media. They have the, you know, whatever mind control devices. <laughs> I mean, that's a whole other rabbit hole we can go down. Like that's scenario number one is that we abjectly lose. Scenario number two is that we become better at those technologies than they are. And we win and we become the new dominators or we, so we, we do totally different technology that's better in a way like a whole right. different paradigm which i, well, see, that, I assume right and that's and that whole different approach that's called changing the terrain yep and that's that's where my uh evolution right revolutionary impulse uh, is directed um and then you know some people might say oh well you know charles you're just shying away from the necessary fight uh you know where does your uh you know, they'll get a diagnosis of being conflict averse and, and, you know, trying to keep everybody happy. And there's probably some truth in that, you know, like, but, but and not only, not only can that heal the larger bioterrain, you know, when people start to perceive things more as a cohesive whole, but it also gives us as perceived individuals a job to do because the one thing we can clean up is our own bioterrain. And, and I'm not limiting this to biology, but, uh, you know, then instead of trying to tackle the whole system, then you realize all you have to do is clean up your own backyard. And, uh, you know, like people like yourself are doing, uh, give people ways to do that. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say that that's, I don't know, I'm not to like, you know, pick on the way you said it. Um, there's, there's truth in that. Um, it, it doesn't... 
it doesn't mean that we don't engage in social and political issues and in you know our collective transformation um, but it's that we understand we have a much deeper understanding of how change happens in the world that doesn't just depend on how we exercise force uh, and make change happen we understand that that where we have located the problem is maybe even part of the problem so there might be a moment where we do stand up and fight uh, or run away or, or um, treat somebody as an irredeemable enemy. But that's not our only way of seeing. And maybe instead of defaulting to that, which you know, we've been taught by, by Hollywood, um, that the answer to a problem is to kill the bad guy. So we, we can, I mean, that's where you, you know, US foreign policy is based on too. So, so we can deprogram from that reflexive response and open up to other ways of addressing problems that might not um, start with conflict. Yeah, because well, we are in a conflict-based paradigm right now where everything's a war, war on right. germs, war on drugs, war on terrorism. And that's the the profit model that seems to work, have worked well for eons. And you're, you know, if we play within that paradigm to fight it, then I'm using the language right there, fight it. Um, as you said, we're in their arena that they are the masters of versus thinking outside the box, which you do so beautifully in your books and coming up with solutions that are more in tune with our actual real humanity and our real essence as divine creators. And that goes to these ideas of, you know, um, the economy of, uh, co of collectivity or not necessarily, you know, the sacredness of, uh, of us working together and the ideas that we, um, we can connect spirit to the material in a way that um, brings a, a sacred reverence for everything that we do and versus, um, you know, the ends justify the means, which is currently the way the system is set up and, and you're hitting on all those points so beautifully. And, you know, it's, it's kind of like, it's tricky because we also have to, as, as Bear just said, we do need to clean up our terrain before, you know, we're in a very reactionary system right now where we want to go fight the bad guys because we're just seeing all the, you know, everything around us. However, you know, I feel like before we can do that, we got to make sure that we, we have our act together before we can come together as a community and not to be so reactionary and maybe sit back and think about what's important to our lives and connecting with spirit and all that. And then once we're in tune with that and we have an under greater understanding of who we are as, you know, infinite consciousness or whatever we want to call that, then we can come together. And really, this sounds really hippy dippy, but it's really love <laughs> that just conquers all because what is there to fear? Fear goes out the window. There is no more fear because we have a deeper understanding of why we're here and, and all that. And the reactionaryism goes away. Yeah. So. And, and what I was suggesting is that on an individual level, it does come back to each of us. Uh, understanding that change does come from the inside and we're the only one that can, um, you know, and I'm not talking about physical ecology. I'm just talking about, uh, you know, understanding our true potential from within. And, and in that uh, simultaneously, we are aware that there's nothing to fight against. It's only, you know, uh, looking within. And then if my experience is when you get down the road with that endeavor a bit, 
it, uh, it automatically puts you in touch with the reality that there is this interconnectedness and that, uh, you know, we're all part of the same thing. So yeah, no struggles, uh, no looking at demons outside of yourself and, uh, you know, getting to that inescapable conclusion that we're all in this together. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, the one thing about the, the myth of, um, with your article is, I mean, really that's been since God going back thousands of years, there's always been a myth of a demon or a devil, or, you know, that's the, the role that religion has played massively in, in, and it really does come to division. And I really feel like right now we're seeing this, um, it all come to a head, this, this disconnect. It's, it's really now we're, we're facing it as we move into this new age of connection and it's forcing people to really come to this realization that, um, you know, it's the polarization has gotten so extreme in society that I feel personally, it's going to, it's going to really force people to really make a decision. And to me, that's exciting. And I feel like we've talked about this in previous podcasts. This is actually, if you look at it the right way, this is a, a time of great opportunity. And it's really universe saying, wake up, it's time, you know, you're not going to be able to escape this. The, the escapism is done. Nobody can escape this. So it's forcing everybody to really look in the mirror and figure out what's your priority and how are you going to tackle this. And we have a lot, I mean, we still obviously have a lot of escapism and pointing fingers, but I feel like, like with what we try to do in our community is, is give people solutions, as you were saying, Charles, um, to really move forward in the new in this new era of togetherness of unity because we all are all connected and that relates to health that relates to economics that relates to how we relate to each other as humans um, and so that's something that's beautiful like I was just telling you before the show I just read well I listened to on one and a half speed on audible your sacred economics book and it really you do a great job of really illustrating that on the economic side of this uh, you know economy of disconnect of disconnection and where and how it, it's led to all these systems that we can really point our finger to as being you know a, a conspiracy but really it's this grander system um, that has really caused this disconnect and it's as we say it's failing <clears throat> all these systems are failing right now and we're, we're seeing that playing out right in front of our eyes so that being said you know fast forward 10 years since you've written that book and I know you said you just said that you know you're you're going to update that, but what to you are some of these grander solutions that we're seeing played out that can give our community and people listening to this some hope on that change is happening and that we are, you know, in fact, coming out of this in a way that really the new era of togetherness and connectivity and spirit meets materialism is really unfolding in front of our eyes right now. I mean, are you, are you witnessing that yourself from your end or is it really all just still kind of massive disconnect and, kind of just chaos. Well, I like to uh, quote Tom Atlee, uh, who puts out a, a publication called the Co-Intelligence Journal. He says, things are getting better and better and worse and worse, faster and faster. <laughs> it does sometimes look like uh, humanity is splitting into two, uh, splitting into two realities even. I just heard... Uh, someone some someone on a podcast basically saying that you know there's the uh those who are choosing to stay in a low vibration and those who are moving to a higher vibration and i was listening to that i'm like and i added in the back of my mind and those and you can tell who is who 
by those who think that they're in the higher vibration are actually in the lower vibration. Like, you know, anything that, that invites us into a, um, <clears throat> a hierarchy, like a, a, a hierarchy of consciousness or spirituality where some are more evolved than others, that is actually a, um, just another expression of the age of separation and the war on evil. Uh, and this, this ascensionism that would have us leave the material world behind uh, in the process of raising our vibrations. So I don't, yet at the same time, there's something true there. Like I feel like I'm, you know, for, for, for decades, I have intellectually and in many practical ways, but especially intellectually rejected um, much of normality as our society describes it. Um, but I've kind of lived in both worlds, you know, like um, I'm not homesteading, you know, like we still get our food from, you know, Trader Joe's, most of our food from Trader Joe's most of the year. And, and it's not like Trader Joe's, I mean, it's, you know, a step up from, you know, whatever Walmart, but it's not like it's a full embodiment of my ideals. You know, it's kind of, I'm partly living in the old world, you know, I'm still ordering stuff from Amazon, you know? Um, I mean, there's numerous ways that I'm not really living in community. Uh, we're in a single family box, like so many ways. And it's not like I, uh, aspire. It's not an aspiration, actually, where I finally get to approve of myself, if only I can uh, live up to the words that I believe. Uh, that's actually a trap, the trap of, of serving vanity rather than change. Uh, but in these times, I, I am uh, being faced with a much more stark choice than in the past, where I really have to uh, jump into the new reality. I can't, I can't keep a foot in both worlds. It's like having a foot on two icebergs that are drifting apart. And if I don't want to fall in, I've got to jump onto one or onto the other. Like, so, uh, so this is, uh, playing out, you know, okay, maybe we're going to move, you know, there's this community, you know, uh, stuff like that. Um, and maybe, um, you know, in the, in the past, we could keep our kid in, in a Montessori school because you could get exemptions from the vaccinations and stuff, you know. And now, like, <clears throat> you know, and, and, you get in the, this Montessori school, it's really great in some ways. And maybe, yeah, it's kind of orthodox in other ways. But, you know, it still carries the spirit of Maria Montessori, which if you're going to talk about frequencies and vibrations, hers was very, very high very beautiful transmission that has come through a century now. Uh, but now, you know, it's like, okay. And, and, and the school that we're intending to go to is doing their best, but there's a lot of scared parents, you know, it may not be possible to stay even in this alternative aspect of the normal way of life where you send your kid to school. So it is in so many ways, like in a lot of ways, I jumped ship a long time ago. You know, I haven't, um, you know, been to an MD since 1991. 
Uh, and, and, you know, I've full, full bore alternative medicine. Uh, and in other ways, you know, like I'm still doing my best to, to, um, uh, carry out the rituals that our society demands, such as the ritual of filing income taxes, uh, or the, the ritual of getting a driver's license. Like these are some of the basic rituals that keep our society going. Uh, our society is actually riddled with rituals, no more and no less than any traditional culture, but we don't recognize most of them as rituals. Uh, that'd be a whole other topic we could talk about, um, which would be interesting in, the, in terms of medicine. Anyway, so yeah, but Mike, just to, to I'm just basically agreeing with you here that, that there does seem to be some kind of uh, uh, resolution of reality into two bubbles. Yeah, I see that, you know, you just look at your Instagram stories, right? And you're like, whoa, how do people living in such different notions of reality right now? And it's, you know, and there's, um, there's specific, like you were saying, um, you know, those who are still in the quote unquote mainstream versus those who are like myself trying to homestead and, and get more untapped, we tend to, in our own human nature, judge those and judge ourselves for how alternative we are or how unalternative they are. Um, or then those who are maybe still have cable television and are enjoying specific types of entertainment that we might find to be part of the oppressive nature of, of you know, the machine, they look upon uh, others as, oh, weird conspiracy theorists or whatnot. And once again, what is that? That is disconnect. That is the... Um, the just the driving nail between our our ability as conscious creators to come together and really create what I think everybody really wants. I think every natural human being wants to be in a loving space where they feel welcome and and they can be you know follow their pursuits that makes them happy and um, at least I would hope so. Um, this kind of brings up the notion of NPCs. If you're familiar with this at all, Charles, you know that there are, you know, non-player characters. Yeah, non-player characters, and maybe. Yeah, man, I was I, I was playing Dungeons and Dragons before you were born. <laughs> um, hey, man, I was playing. I was uh, an ADD uh, dungeon master. Uh, I'm a kid of the '80s, so I'm older than. Oh, you okay, think, maybe not quite before you were born, but. Uh, Forgotten yeah. Realms and uh, uh, Dragonlance, but uh, yeah, but you know this idea that. Um, NPCs are all around us and you know the idea of being in a matrix of the simulation theory right that um in really what is our reality we create our reality we get all we, we talk about this stuff all the time I think you're an NPC but, though exactly so I could be an NPC in your reality and um you're literally manifesting my you know uh my reality here for you and are we all in our own dream? I mean, we could go down all these rabbit holes, and who right? who are we even, you know, Ex to, exactly. Yeah. exactly. Yeah. So, you know, we go down these philosophical rabbit holes all the time and it's fun to do. But once again, uh, as bears want to say to me all the time, you still got to do your laundry, right? And you got to put the trash away and you got to, we live in this materialistic world. And that's what I love so much about your book. And that's something I 
you know, I'm often guilty of is demeaning the materialism and saying, you know, we got to get back to being more spiritual and all this, but there's a, a sanctity to creating uh, within this realm and being a craftsman, right? And in, and in finding your, um, your path as uh, somebody, your vocation. And um, we know we did a whole podcast on Wallace Waddle's book, um, The Science of Getting Rich, which I don't know if you've ever read. It, it's all about, you know, it's the turn of the 20th century. And uh, it talks about this notion of scarcity versus, um, mm-hmm. you know, abundance. And um, right now we're in a paradigm of scarcity. And you talk about this a lot in your book. Uh, and, um, you know, the idea that we've now gone down this, the, this, this path of capitalism or, you know, consumerism and, and efficiency to where our cities are basically just efficient means to an ends. And we've lost that, that um, sacred thing that maybe past civilizations had where they had beautiful land, you know, beautiful architecture and, and just craftsmanship wherever you looked. And once again, this relates to the, these conspiracy theories. Well, there was the Tartarians and we've lost that. And, you know, now we have the evil reptiles that are forcing us into this reality, but either way we look at it. um, I think what you really stress is this idea of getting back to the sacred and getting back to our vocation as you know, what is our role here on this planet, whether it be a simulation or not, we are really here to be creators. And I think once again, this is a time in our executive meet, co-op meeting we just had, there's people that are like, oh, I got to wear a mask at my nine to five job. What am I going to do? And I, you know, it's easier for me to say this because I've been doing it for a while, but it's leave the job and do what you, what you love. Maybe this is universe pointing you in that direction. Maybe if you don't want to wear a mask at your nine to five job, maybe, you know, you have options. And so anyways, a little bit of a rant there, but um, I think it's important for us to be looking at, at this as a means to evolve and to really move into the next phase of our development as a human species. And so, you know, that's what we're doing at Alpha Vedic. We're trying to, with the co-op and everything that we do, we're trying to stress these, these outlets that people can have and hopefully give some inspiration uh, for those who are really kind of feeling like they're being put literally in a box right now with everything that's going on with COVID and, and these draconian measures that we're seeing all around us. So anyways, mm-hmm. a little bit of a rant there, but um, yeah. yeah. So yeah, this thing about... Um, materiality um, it is actually an act of worship to make beauty of the things of the world whether we're talking materially or socially uh, the people the world the, the life of the flesh the life of matter uh, it is uh, an orientation that serves us equally in any realm in any bardo state, whether it, we would call it material or not. Because in fact, materiality is not what we have told ourselves as a society that it is. Um, and, you know, I'm sure everybody listening to that knows that when you uh, go down to the quantum level, you don't have a bunch of little hard balls move, bouncing around according to Newtonian laws of kinetics. Uh, you have information. You have relationship. That's not as recognized. People are, oh, it's all information. It's all energy. What it actually is, is relationship. What we take to be existence 
uh, depends on relationship. To locate something in time and space is a to, is in quantum mechanics. It's called a measurement, and it fixes something into reality. That only happens with a relationship. So, in, and, and even without what we think of as an observer, if two quantum particles uh, are not don't interact, then they um, remain in a superposition of states with respect to each other. They're not entangled. So this is, um, on a deep level, the, the successor to the story of separation and its independent existence. It becomes a relational existence. And I know that's like super philosophical, but it feeds, that's one of the tributaries that feeds sacred economics. The re reuniting know. of the material and the spiritual and the understanding of our, of our actions in materiality as a kind of worship and a kind of prayer, in fact. Because every, everything that we do in service to life and in service to beauty is a prayer for life and a prayer for beauty. And we'll bring more and more of that into the world. And because we are not fundamentally separate from the world, it'll bring more and more of that into our experience. That's the, the another way to put it, uh, this, this essence of sacred economics is it is the spirit of the gift. Understanding that I am here as are you and everybody uh, in order to uh, give something to the world that you are uniquely able to give. And maybe it's a, a similar kind of gift to somebody else. Maybe you're not, you're not the only musician, you know, you're not the only artist, you're not the only podcaster, but your particular art or music or um, podcast is unique and, it is, and you were uh, created with a, a unique complement of abilities, skills, gifts, and circumstances, uh, like a unique life path that suits you perfectly to give this gift and puts you in exactly where you are needed to give that gift in the best way. This is the orchestrating intelligence that I referred to before in the context of conspiracy myth. And this understanding of self is pretty much the opposite of what the story of separation tells us, which is that we are here to take we are here to dominate. We are here to maximize our self-interest, reproductive or economic. No, it's the opposite. I mean, you can try that and see how you like it. See if you're actually happy when you have, uh, you know, gotten your financial security and your bunker with 10 years of food and your guns and your gold and your security systems and your dome around your house to keep out the viruses and like that bunker mentality, that actually is the opposite of wealth. Real wealth is that you feel at home in the world. Real wealth is that you feel totally free to be generous, totally free to give of your gifts, like because you're receiving so much, you become a, a wide channel of throughput of, of giving and receiving both. Mm -hmm. It's the it's the corollary to health. Wealth, that kind of wealth is the corollary to health as being in full relationships and being a healthy channel 
of the flow of life and energy and genetics and, and information. And the flow state. Yeah. Yes. Um, and let me just say one more thing here. There's something else. Um, gift. Oh, I lost it. There was another, I'll probably, as soon as you start talking, I'll probably It'll come. It. Barry, you were going to say something? <laughs> well, I was just going to say there are evidence-based models of, um, you know, what we would, I would consider more true science, which is, uh, mirrors exactly what you're saying and that the universe is not a taking universe. It's a, it's a two-way process and it gives in both directions. And there's a level of physics that would illustrate that. You know, we talk about Walter Russell and his cosmogony quite a bit. And I think he's done the best uh, job of doing that. You know, uh, another thing I was just going to comment earlier, one of the big traps I think we all get into, and, and especially a lot of us that are aspiring to maybe be more self-sufficient and, and, you know, all the things we're talking about, um, we're always trying to get somewhere. And I think the realization has to come someday that maybe we're exactly where we need to be and it's not a bad place to be. And, uh, you know, when we always uh, are looking down the road, well, when I do get that bunker or have, you know, more silver and gold stashed under my bed, you know, then, then I will have arrived. But, uh, yeah, I, I'm personally at a place where I don't think there's, was ever any place to get to in the first place. And, uh, and, uh, and as usual, you know, any movement, whatever side you think you're on, uh, we fall into the same old trap. So, uh, you know, I'd really like to follow the conversation a little bit, if, if you want, into uh, the economic model. And, you know, obviously at one time, somebody came up with the bright idea that we need an intermediate kind of means of exchange. And so it's a, it's a difficult uh, subject that I, I try to broach with people. And people have a difficult time getting out of, uh, for instance, I've, I've heard you on some of your podcasts talk about like, it, it always reverts to socialism versus capitalism. And, and, you know, uh, you know, you're back into a same struggling dichotomy of things where, uh, you know, really, you know, there's nothing such as capitalism. And, and as I've heard you say, you know, well, what's capital? It depends on what you're talking about. So, uh, if you could maybe follow and help me develop some of those ideas and maybe uh, give us some clues as how we can get out of this means of exchange so that we are all free to, uh, you know, follow our true vocation, find our purpose in life and not uh, have everything revert back to our pecuniary interest. Mm -hmm. Okay. <clears throat> so I'll, I'll start uh, by picking on your language a little bit again. Um, okay, uh, that's fine. Just because you, you start off by saying, you know, at some point somebody came along with the bright idea of, uh, of a medium of exchange. If only it were somebody's idea and not an organic phenomenon that emerged spontaneously and independently, actually, in various civilizations. It's, it's, an, it's an inevitable part of a civilization that develops um, a certain scale and a certain division of labor. Like there has to be some way to coordinate the activities of human beings toward a common end and to bridge the meeting of gifts and needs over vast social spaces. You don't need money in a small community where everybody knows who's been contributing, who hasn't, who needs what, 
uh, who has what gift. You know, you need your flute repaired, you know, and you go to that guy over there and, you know, you need help with childbirth, you go to this person there, everybody, everybody knows. Uh, it's only when society reaches a certain scale that, that um, a, a medium of exchange and a way of keeping track of things becomes necessary. Um, everything, and, and, and once you have that, the entire unfolding of civilization, good and bad, is also inevitable. It happened, the same phenomena, like um, patriarchy, slavery, warfare, uh, torture, um, and the good things, you know, literature, uh, theater, like all of these things happened independently in multiple civilizations, China, India, uh, you know, the Middle East, Egypt, North America, South America, like the same things. Even, and this goes to terrain theory a bit too, but, but even more than that, um, to understand society and to understand civilization and even mythology, like our basic stories as organisms themselves that have a lifespan and a, and a, um, a life cycle. So even like the, the stuff that, um, okay, so on one level, when we have the kind of money system that we have now, which was not invented as an evil plot, but which grew over time, it is inevitable that we will have, it, it like invites, it creates roles for ruthless, manipulative, dominating people uh, and the corporation, which can do that even better than an individual can by kind of canceling out the empathy of everybody within the corporation. Um, and, and like all of this is kind of inevitable. Um, even like the, the, you know, shadow realities of the, you know, pedophilia elite and stuff like that. Um, in a way, when, when, when you have domination as in, in the DNA of civilization, which goes back thousands of years, uh, in fact, originally good, the concept of good, which did not exist in Stone Age societies, as far as I know, it was identified with order. Good was us, evil was the barbarian. Good was the sheep, evil was the wolf. Good was the ordered, cultivated land, evil was the wild. And the good king conquered the barbarians, drained the wetlands, cut down the forest, slayed the wild beasts, and brought order to the galaxy. Like Darth Vader thinks that he's good. <laughs> yes. Okay. So this paradigm of domination, it underlies the topic we talked about earlier, the, the default into war mentality. It underlies, um, well, or it is married to reductionism because one way to dominate is you reduce things to their causal base causal elements that you can control. You find something to exert a force on. And so if you understand how force operates in the world, ultimately the, the, the totalitarian dream of that would be to um, map every single particle and every single force. Then you could have perfect control. And we see uh, a mirror of that in the current political uh, zeitgeist and in the, like agenda 21 they talk literally yeah, about know, that right and like you know whether or not this is actually happening or whether these fears are overblown like the basic idea of well of course we can make a better world if we have everything under control and if you are 
immersed in that mindset and you're one of, you know, in authority, you're like, yeah, we're not going to use this for bad things. We're going to bring more order to society. We're going to protect people. We're going to rationally and efficiently administer this data set. If we, the more data we get, the better able we are to do that. All part of the same paradigm. So to take it back to economics, um, Okay, so, so domination, right? I was going to go domination. So, like the very extreme of domination, is the, the, um, you know, kind of stuff that we hear about with Wayfair and all that, um, and and you know, sat satanic cults and power and, and that kind of thing. Like it's almost an organic necessity that it reach that point. Um, and I would also say, this is not a permanent state of affairs, but we are entering now an initiatory phase where we can say we're done with that, where we are moving into a new story or where um, conditions have made it possible that this inevitable evolution of civilization has reached a crossroads. And we are at a, we are at a choice point now. It is not inevitable anymore that we continue on the ascent of separation uh, and, 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 continue on the road of progress that is identified with control. It had been inevitable. We, the, the choice was unconscious, and now we are being offered a conscious choice. Part of that choice is the story of money, the story of capital, as you were saying, like capitalism, socialism. Okay, what is capital? What capitalism is depends on what capitalism. What capital is, is a story. It is a set of agreements among human beings that say, you own this, he owns that, and this is valuable. And, 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 and these symbols in a computer mean something. That's what money is. It's symbols. It has no power or reality aside from our agreements about it. And agreements can be changed. Or can they? Well, I would say that sometimes they can. When they reach that uh, metamorph metamorphosis moment, uh, which is where, where we are right now. And I think that, and this may be, or maybe we're going both ways at once, you know, uh, but I, I believe right now that we have a chance, we have a choice point where we could double down on the program of control or we could let go of that and embrace that we live in a world where goodness need not come from domination, a world where intelligence and purpose and beauty are emergent phenomena that we can participate in and bow into service to, rather than having to impose upon a world that has none of these things. Part of sacred economics is that, it's to recognize the, the natural tendency of the world toward order, toward organization, toward complexity, toward life, and toward beauty. And therefore, how do we become part of that? And when we tap into that emergence, our power becomes much greater than the power that is dependent on how much force we can exert to impose life, beauty, intelligence onto the world. So this is a, a, you know, it's kind of a big picture and 
in the book, Sacred Economics, I do translate that. Okay, what does that actually mean, you know, in banking? You know, what does it actually mean in, in, uh, for taxation or for the design of money? Like what money system um, and, and economy would embody our dawning realization of our interbeingness, uh, of our compassion, of the sacredness of all things? Like, because money is right now not the friend of those sentiments. It, in fact, is the enemy of them. I mean, so often the, the most remunerative choice is the worst for the world, for other people, for the environment. So we can make new agreements that are aligned with the choice to step into the consciousness of interbeing. Yeah, that's, that's brilliant. Go ahead, Bear. No, I was just going to say that, uh, you know, biological systems seek balance. And the reason why I gravitated towards bioterrain medicine is it got us out of that dichotomy of health and disease. And it was only natural forces seeking balance and, you know, extrapolating that to the larger world. Uh, I don't see what's going on in the world now as bad or good. There's just natural forces seeking balance. And it sure looks bad sometimes, but all I see is that, well, there is a lack of balance now and there's a need for a balancing effect. And until that happens, then, you know, the forces that seem to be in control are really not going to have any counterbalancing uh, you know, effect, and you'll have all the symptoms that go along with that. And there's one other thing that happens in nature besides balance, you know, which is mm -hmm. like balance is maintained through homeostatic feedback. You have mm -hmm. negative feedback that self-limits any process and it maintains homeostasis. But you also have in nature positive feedback loops, which are like, like the cascade of hormones that leads to childbirth, for example. These are not sustainable but they take you to a uh, transition point, to a phase shift. And I, you could look at civilization that way. We have a, a self-reinforcing positive feedback loop toward uh, more and more consumption, uh, more and more economic growth, uh, uh, and more and more control. Like control is a self-reinforcing positive feedback loop. The more control you impose on human beings, the more they rebel, the more and the more control you need to impose. Look at the way school has become compared to when I was a kid, you know, and it was open campus in high school. <laughs> and, and anybody in the community could come in and there was a freaking gun club, a shooting yeah. club where kids would bring their guns to school and do like target practice after school. Like there was no alarms, you know, like, like metal detectors drug sniffing dogs or any of the things that you find in high schools today, razor wire around the perimeter, you know, surveillance cameras, drug tests, nothing. Could you say that's because there was a healthier terrain back then and, and relating back to the, to the positive feedback, like look at the locusts we're seeing now, right? right? Because the terrain due to monoculture and due to everything we're seeing with how modern agriculture has developed. Now we have the locust plagues and they're a natural, they're nature. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, we're spot right. on there. 
Right. So then there's like, yeah, so there's like a, a locust outbreak, you know, or, or uh, a new kind of herbicide resistant weed. And so the solution to this failure of control is to apply even more control, which worsens the conditions and requires even more control and even more and even more. And I've always thought that this is unsustainable, that it reaches a breaking point. Now I'm more of the mind that it reaches a choice point. And then, and where we, where it becomes um, intolerable. But intolerable to um, who we want to become or, or who we really are. So in order to tolerate it, we have to shut down even more of our humanity and our aliveness. Um, but whether it is, see, because I've just become, this is something that, that has evolved in my thinking over the last 15 years. You know, I, I kind of used to think that collapse was going to save us. And that someday things were going to get so bad that we have to change. Now I think that we are merely offered initiatory moments where we can change, but that climate change or Y2K or economic collapse or none of these things are going to rescue us from ourselves and rescue us from the necessity of making a choice and the power of making a choice. Yeah. But there's an idealization behind collapse that you're seeing. There's a narrative, a story behind that. No one really wants collapse, though. Collapse is right. frightening. Or I mean, well, you know what another <laughs> one is? Is disclosure. Yeah. Like this is, this, you know, um, I said before that, that stories or mythologies are organisms. They have a lifespan. <clears throat> Part of that is the birth of new archetypes. Archetypes are not static. Archetypes evolve. Sometimes they die. Sometimes new ones are born. And one of the new archetypes of our time that fits into certain mythologies is the archetype of disclosure. This, this um, defining event. You guys know what I'm talking about. Of where the alien. All of this, yeah, it's, it's all revealed. You know, it's all revealed. The, the deep state, you know, and the suppressed free energy devices and the suppressed cancer cures and all the stuff you know, the, the secret files of Wilhelm Reich, you know, that were seized by the FBI, all this stuff, um, all of the uh, behind the scenes machinations of the power elite, it's all revealed. Like this, the, the, the horrors and the miraculous things. And, and, and so there's this same projection of our, of our hopes onto this uh, archetypal event called disclosure. Uh, and I also think that it's, it, in a way, it is kind of disempowering um, to project that rescue onto something that is going to come from the outside. Of course. When we've already had disclosure, <laughs> right? Well, we starting have disclosure in like, every day, really. Well, starting in 2017, it got into the New York Times, UFOs. And now the Navy freely admits that something totally unexplainable by current science is happening. So did everybody say, like, rush out of their houses and be like, oh my God, UFOs are real after all. Uh, every, this changes everything. No, it got just submerged in the news cycle. It just, like, disclosure happened and nothing changed. And that says to me that, that we, are, we were not actually ready for it. 
uh, that there is a still a development of consciousness that uh, has not fully reached maturity yet. Uh, because if disclosure happened, most people would just would, would shunt it aside. They would they would just reject those data points because the old story's immune system is still strong enough to reject uh, anomalous data. But that's changing fast and we can help it change. Like you guys had um, Dr. E on uh, Edith, uh, Edith Butu-Chan on your, yeah. yeah. Like the kind of stories that she shared on that, um, those are part of the softening of the resistance. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's like what I talk about with the Psy research that's going on with like Dean Radin and these amazing thinkers who are mm -hmm. connecting spirit with science and doing things showing that we have psych psychic powers and they're doing like hard, hard studies showing this. And that, that goes back to our connectivity as we're all connected into what you call source or the divine code or whatever you want to call it. You know, Joe Espinoza, uh, Espinoza or Dr. Um, Dispenza. Dispenza, thank you. Greg Braden, um, these guys, Bruce uh, Lipton, they've done amazing jobs of kind of bridging those gaps, right? Between the mind and the, the, the logical reductionist thinking and the, the more spiritual side. And that's, I feel like, a soft disclosure too. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, stuff we talk about every day, every week on this show. It's what we're all about, really. But what I was saying is we get disclosure literally every day because what going back to Walter Russell and what he talks about is like the third column, the third pillar that really only truth comes from within and that really disclosure really comes to our own awakening within ourselves. And, you know, it's really easy to put this mythos of disclosure out there that whether it be aliens or the deep state or whatever, but I, I feel like real true disclosure needs to come within and it's there all around us just by going out in nature or with uh, Dr. Ubuntu Chan's, um, her stories of, you know, doing, um, you know, uh, <clears throat> whether it be the meditation work she's done or uh, this kind of uh, connection with Mother Gaia. Uh, you know, and having these these profound experiences, her her son talking to her before he was born, these things, and we can experience that ourselves every day if we choose to. We have the choice to do this or not, and it, and I feel like we get trapped in this externalizing this, but really we can do this by exploring ourselves, and this is why I talk about stuff like lucid dreaming, going out of body, and all these kind of things, because really we can empower ourselves to have disclosure every day if we want. And, and that kind of work uh, actually attracts that archetypal being called disclosure closer to our reality. It, it, uh, it, 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 it's magnetized to the desire for it and to the readiness for it. Yeah. So um, it's not that it won't come, you know. I mean, <clears throat> I, and I do think that, it, that something big is coming that is going to be really hard for people to process and going to generate a lot of cognitive dissonance and perhaps those of us who have been on the margins of reality for a long time will have uh, an important role to play when that happens yeah um going back to the economy the sacred economics because this book is fascinating and it relates to a lot what i'm doing and with with what we're doing and with the teams i'm working with on the crypto side and um you know 
with blockchain and with decentralization coming and, and all this and with this idea of the gift economy um, that you bring forward in it. I mean, we're on DLive right now and that's literally how this system is built is we're putting content out and people can choose to gift us and contribute to us a crypto called Lino points, right? So we are seeing that unfolding before our eyes. We are seeing the, the gifting economy kind of come out through technology um, what it, you know, to give us a little update on that book, are you seeing that yourself as well? And, um, you know, what are some of the updates to that you've abridged to that initial writing, which you, I think you put out in 2010 before the kind mm -hmm. of evolution of things like blockchain, bitcoins, right. you know, eruption onto the scene. Uh, we're actually doing a full show next week, uh, Crypto 3.0 for Dummies. And um, we're going to cover all the basics of crypto right now and the importance of decentralization, not falling into the traps of a lot of, you know, just like anything in this world, there's, there's both sides of the coin and there's a lot of traps in that world, but also there's a lot of powerful evolution coming out of it. Um, but uh, what in, in your mind, Charles, um, are some of the positives, if, if you will, if, or if you see any positives with blockchain and crypto and other kind of, you know, technologies that have evolved since you wrote that book? Okay. Um, and I, I need to actually to sign off pretty soon. Okay. Um, so um, maybe I'll give a short answer. And then if there's one more thing that you really want to go into. Sure. Um, um, well, the, the first thing that crypto does uh, is that it shows us that there is an alternative and that money is an agreement and that we could make new kinds of money. I mean, this was to some extent being signaled by local currencies that were popular in the 90s and early 2000s. Uh, and crypto brought that concept um, that we could you know, have a totally different kind of money system and that we can create our own money. It brought that to a much larger segment of the population. Um, it is theoretically decentralized, but, you know, gold mining is decentralized too. Uh, and it can still form the basis of a centralized system if, if it is used as a reserve currency. I mean, you could have basically a replica of our current financial system built on Bitcoin as a reserve currency. It's actually not a very useful everyday currency because of transaction uh, problems. Uh, right. You know, the, the quantity and speed of transactions doesn't suit it to, to be used in the way that we use money right now. Uh, but it would make a very um, uh, usable res reserve currency. But then we have potentially the same kinds of problems that led to the Federal Reserve the booms and the busts and the panics, uh, the runs on banks, stuff like that. So I don't think like the technology in and of itself will necessarily transform society, but it does open up new territory for exploration. And also like the thing about crypto um, and especially Bitcoin, I know there's others that have pretty fundamentally different designs, uh, but the idea that you can... Um, abdicate the political dimensions of money creation to an algorithm is dangerous because there are still uh, a step behind that. Uh, there's still um, a play of power going on 
and a play of agreements that, that determine, you know, what that algorithm is and who it benefits. Um, yep. So, so Bitcoin totally benefits, yeah. So, so Bitcoin benefits those who have a certain amount of technological savvy and uh, the financial resources to set up server farms, you know, um, it, it's, it's, not a very conscious choice of how should we distribute new money in society. That should happen. It's messy, but it should happen as a political agreement, as a social agreement uh, that, um, that embodies our values, especially our emerging values. That agreement should embody our ecological values and our, our values toward, toward social equality and the uh, repairing of the damage of past injustice. Like all of these things could be incorporated into the design of money. And that is inescapably political and messy and human. Um, so like the idea that, that this could be, uh, that such decisions could be automatically, rationally uh, executed by computers that can you know, in some visions that can optimally distribute resources everywhere, you're in a fantasy. There's still um, power at play behind those systems. And if it is, if it remains hidden, then we'll see who benefits and who gets left out again. Totally. So, so that's, those are some of my thoughts on crypto. Yeah. One thing that we're, we were developing uh, with a, uh, a, you know, pro, a project called Karma Ship was a whole new con uh, type of consensus that was based on human, bringing it back to the human and actually using the blockchain to provide a, um, a mechanism for value based on human experience. Yeah. And that's great. Yeah. Cause, cause, cause you know, like these like self-executing contracts and stuff like that, like in a normal contract, you can still appeal to some human being to say, Hey, something's changed. The relationships changed. Conditions have changed. Uh, in, in in our current money system, at least in theory, if there is some like huge shock to the system, the central banks and Federal Reserve can can increase or decrease the money supply. You know, it can be organically connected to human beings, and and it's 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 dangerous, in my view, to yeah. cede that kind of sovereignty over to machines. No, I I, I firmly agree. Uh, and I think we could talk about this for hours. Um, any, I know you got to get going, Charles. Uh, such a stimulating conversation. Uh, Bear, any last, uh, you know, any final stuff that you'd like to ask Charles or any ideas here? I know you're probably thinking of some um, things. Yeah, there's a lot of things, but probably <laughs> beyond the confines of our time right now. So um, why don't we, I think it's maybe a good uh, place to wrap it up. And Charles, once again, thanks so much for being here. Uh, you know, we really appreciate your insights and all the work you're doing. And I'd really encourage uh, people that are listening that uh, don't already know of your work, which probably not too many, but, uh, you know, to really check out your website there. And if you can, uh, you know, just maybe tell us the best places to find you and your work. Yeah, I, I kind of don't really do social media much. So it's just my website, charleseisenstein.org. And, I noticed that yeah. I was trying to tag you on uh, Twitter and stuff. Good for you, man. Cause that's a, God, that's a whole other rabbit hole. The gulags of the social media corporatocracy, uh, yeah. you, you know, <laughs> for, me, for me, it's not so much of like a principled, uh, 
non-compliance. It's more of laziness. <laughs> yeah. Oh. <laughs> well, hey, man, it was such a pleasure to have you on. Uh, you guys go to his website. I'll put it in the links here of the show notes. And um, um, do you have anything else that you're working on right now, Charles, that we, uh, uh, we can look forward to? Are you just kind of chilling out or um, what are you doing? Um, you know, I mean, right now I'm, I'm very much um, wrapped up in some family things. Um, and um, yeah, I have, I do have some, some writing projects brewing in the background, but um, you didn't even mention I wrote a book on climate actually called Climate, A New Story. That's that right. I'm still having, putting some energy into, um, as you might guess, it's um, saying something different from either of the two prized positions in the current debate um, and advances a, a living earth perspective that is not based on carbon reductionism. Uh, so I, want to, I do want to mention that. Uh, and we do have that book and all your books uh, at alphavedic.com forward slash book list. So not only can you support Charles by purchasing the books there, but you can also, we get a little piece of that too as a gift for, you know, uh, spreading the wealth. So um, you can go to alphavedic.com forward slash book list and find all of Charles' books on there. And uh, thanks again, Charles, for joining us today. Uh, it's been uh, such a pleasure to have you on. And um, we look forward to having hopefully more conversations down the line because I feel like uh, really we could talk for about 40 hours here. So, <laughs> yeah, we could apply these to any field, you know. I mean, I could have a whole conversation with Bear about the um, medical stuff. But yeah, um, this is great. Yeah, thanks, guys. Thanks so much, man. And you're looking great, dude. So keep doing whatever you're doing because you look well, about 35 helpful. years old. So. It's the, it's the uh, wholesome outdoor activities here at the farm, you know. <laughs> well, uh, enjoy your time at the farm and um, we'll, we'll talk to you later, man. Have a great day. Right. Uh, and everybody on the, on the live stream, thanks so much for joining us today. If you guys enjoyed this talk, you can join us every Thursday at 10 a.m. on DLive, dlive.tv forward slash Alpha Vedic. And uh, it's a free app. Just join in and you, you can choose to, to give us a gift if you want. If not, whatever. We're just here to put this content out and try to really get these inf this information, these ideas out to the world. So thanks, everybody. You can uh, join us on our Telegram too, t.me forward slash Alpha Vedic. It's an amazing community. People just really passionate on there. It's really developed into a, a wonderful online tribe. So t.me forward slash Alpha Vedic and alphavedic.com for everything else. Thanks, everybody. Have a wonderful day. Cheers.